every now and again I've got to come in the gym and knock them cobwebs off, let them uh, open them endorphins up and have a good day. As long as you're happy, mate, and enjoying life, uh, where are you with that? Are you happy and enjoying retirement? I am a bit lost at the minute, but, you know, obviously, I put the time in with my girls and going for nice walks on, on the bikes, um, you know, flying flying to different places, so just keep got to keep busy, really. You know, I've just got to get myself into a routine, you know, because mental health is... Uh, the big thing these days, I think a lot of people are talking about about that and you've got to make sure you look after that mind and keep yourself, you know, keep, you need, you always need to have something to do. 27 years, you know, it's, it's a little bit like I've died, you know, uh, in a way because boxing's been my life and uh, it's, you know, it's, that, it has been my life, it's all I really know, you know, to a certain degree, so. You know, it's, it is hard when you when you do hang them up. When you hang them up, it's hard to uh, can you know transfer into something different. Hey everybody, you know what time it is. Welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport, where some of you are going to spend your hard-earned time, money, effort watching chapter three in a saga that we didn't need to see in the beginning for being brutally honest but if that's how you choose to spend your your time energy and money hey who am i to judge but we're back and you know we're going to talk some talk today so strap yourselves in and let's enjoy um in terms of this episode i'm just going to try and catch up on everything that's happened since i last recorded um off the top of the head so if i miss some stuff understand that hey it happens sometimes and it's probably the best place to start will be the the Dillian White situation, right? So I was out Saturday and I didn't get an opportunity to to watch it. Although weirdly enough, I did get a text saying, mate, if you want to come in for the fight, and this is from Matchroom, if you want to come in to watch the fight, mate, we can get you in. And I was like, eh, it feels like a bit like a honey trap. So I was like, thanks, but no thanks. But as I said before, I thought that was a really good card. I'm not going to be here criticizing it after the fact. thought that was a really good card. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. And if that was a Saturday night fight night on Sky, we'd be saying the standards have gone up at Sky. Harsh, but true. So Dillian fights Jermaine Franklin. Now, the, the subtext to this isn't really Jermaine Franklin. Jermaine Franklin is any other heavyweight. Um, and as much as people want to, you know, say his stock has risen, he's, he's another heavyweight. He'd get beaten by Jared Big Baby Anderson. He'd get beaten by him now. That's not to say Franklin doesn't come with some pedigree, Golden Gloves champion, but the fact is he's small and he's built like he's small. And he doesn't look like he's heavy-handed enough to be a factor at heavyweight. So in a lot of ways, that's a well-scouted opponent for Dillian because you can sell the undefeated record, you can sell all this stuff around the Golden Gloves, but you know deep down this guy's not a threat. Sharp enough hands, quick enough hands, but there's no pop and snap in the punches. So perfect opponent for Dillian. And if you then frame it in the context of you're switching trainers to Buddy McGirt. So let's touch on that. Dillian's biggest defeats, the defeats where we're like, whew, whew that, that looked mean, have all come from uppercuts. Joshua's fight-defining punch against Dillian White was the uppercut, right? 
That's what knocked Dillian White bandy. Povetkin, it was a left uppercut that knocked Dillian White bandy. And then Fury, same uppercut, knocked Dillian White bandy. So when you're paying people a healthy six-figure package to train you, you'd expect at least one of them to go, maybe we don't want to leave you in position for uppercuts going forward. And it seems that Buddy McGurk's the first guy to actually say, okay, we're going to put things in place to make sure you're not getting hit with those uppercuts anymore. Right? So let's, let's eliminate the biggest threat to your, to your victory in a fight. And that tends to be the uppercut in his case. So what you saw with that was you saw two things, I think. A lot more right-hand activity with his defense. So that right hand was more active than we've seen it before. Definitely more active than it was under Mark Tibbs. You know, so Dillian's out there, he's using it, and he understands that he has to now defend in sequence. So he's gone from defensive actions to defensive patterns, right? So you can see him. He'll go catch the jab, use the same hand to catch the right hand, use the same hand to block the left hook. Nice. Nice defensive pattern. Pretty basic, but nice to see that he's incorporated that. And then he brought in the cross-arm guard, and people say, ah, oh, it's like Holyfield. Nah, it's different to the Holyfield one. It's more Ken Norton. Um, Holyfield's is quite static and he uses it to bulldoze his way in. Whereas with Norton, it's a bit more dynamic in that it's, uh, it's a move that Ken Norton would use to transition into an attack. Uh, Dillian's still got to get there, but the, the shape that he was presenting was more Ken Norton than it was Evander Holyfield. And that's not to say that they're the originators of it, but for guys his size, they're probably the, the best reference points that are accessible to everybody. So, that, so that's what you've got. New trainer, Buddy McGirt, new ideas. You're going to see a lot more jabs, cleaner jabs, nicer jabs, a multi-purpose jab now. Now it's not just about you know it being a ramrod like it was under Mark Tibbs. There's nuance to it, different textures and flavors to it. So you can now faint it and people don't know what's coming. So we saw that. What else did we see from Buddy? Better punch picking. So a lot more use of the uppercut, which I thought was good. Um, doubling up on the same hand. I mean, better decision-making overall from Dillian. I think that's always been his Achilles heel. He's always wanted to fight too much. And then in doing so, he makes bad decisions. That's why he got caught by Joshua. These are bad decisions you make in the ring. And if Buddy can fix the decision-making, I think it may be a rejuvenated Dillian because you don't have to teach Dillian how to fight. What was missing in this Buddy McGirt kind of process I think it's just the pace and intensity, but that should come as Dillian becomes more comfortable and these things become intuitive. But he can't change trainers again because this is such a radical departure from what he's done before that he'd be lost if he went in any other direction other than Buddy McGirt. So he's got to fully commit now. And I think if he does, he'll be a tidier, tighter fighter for it. And he won't give us that kind of harem, scarem that we're used to. And that might be good for his career longevity. It may not be so good for entertainment factor. We're not, we're not quite there yet, but I think we'll see over time, right? So if we go back to the fight. As I missed the fight, I sort of did this backwards. So I saw what the scores were and I saw what the sentiment on social media was. Then I went back and watched the fight. It didn't feel close. It didn't feel like Dillian was really in trouble. 
you know, when you fight big men, you're going to get hit. You're going to get moved around because these are two big, strong men going at it. But there wasn't a point where you're like, wow, I think Dillian's really regressed here. You just saw a guy trying to figure out what his new style is. So there were points where Dillian was like, at this point, I'd go after him. At this point, I'd have put him to sleep. You know, we didn't really see the big bowling right hands. We didn't see a lot of those reckless punches that he used to throw. It was tidier. It was more composed. It just wasn't fully formed. And nor should it be because he's only had, you know, what's it, six-week camp with, with Buddy? So in watching the fight, give Jermaine Franklin credit for having a go. He, he didn't show up to, to roll over and just take his money. He came to earn his money and he came to make himself a name in the heavyweight division, which I think he has done. And there will be options for him going forward. But, you know, apart from a really intelligent jab to the body, there wasn't much else he was doing. Yes, he was good with the uppercut, but he's a small heavyweight. You should expect that as a bare minimum. He did everything a small heavyweight should do. He did everything that Oscar Rivas probably did, just not with as much conviction. So Franklin looked good, but this is what happens when you switch trainers. You have to drop your, your level down to a point where, you know, you can manage the new information. And you dropping your level down, it gives the perception that the other fighters elevated his level. So Dillian's made Franklin look better than he actually is. If Dillian had just been Mark Tibbs Dillian or Xavier Miller Dillian, I don't think the fight would have gone the distance because Dillian would have been comfortable with that approach and said, okay, I'm just going to keep bombing these right hands on him until he falls over, which he would have done inevitably. But here you saw Dillian thinking, being more considered, which give him credit for. You know, he's not, he's not just a basic lump. He did a lot of good things. And I thought he won comfortably. 8-4, um, I don't think is an unreasonable result to call. I think Dillian did pretty well in that. And I think if people watch the fight back, they'll see he was... He was always in control. He may, not have, he, not, he may not have won every second. He may not have won every minute. But he was always in control. There was never a point where you were like, I think Jermaine Franklin could win this. He's got the tools to win it. Because quite frankly, he didn't. And that's not a shot to him. That's just saying, you've got to work your way up to world level. And if one day Jermaine Franklin gets to world level, he'll probably point to this fight as the key turning point. But there are a couple of things you still want to see in that evolution of Dillian. And I think these will be the key ones. And it will be, you know, can he manage his distance better? He seemed caught between his traditional distance, which is kind of at the edge of his jab. It's normally where he starts from, as opposed to he was almost stepping into mid-range to start his attacks this time. But when he was on the inside, it took him a few rounds to figure out what shots to be throwing on the inside. And I don't think he was consistent enough. But that, that stuff will, will come with training. And look, you, you know, Buddy seems to have sort of hitched his wagon to this idea that British boxing, well, two things are true about British boxing. One, it's quite lucrative and will be lucrative for a while. And two, our fighters are under-coached, under-trained and under-educated. Under now, I'm not sure if that's true. Um, I'll leave that to other people to say. But... If Buddy McGirt thinks he can ride a coach and horses through British boxing, which is kind of where his head is at the moment, and it's not an unreasonable idea, he must say, well, he must be thinking to himself that the standards aren't what they should be here. Because you know, I, th I imagine, you know, Dan spent some time with him in California. I wouldn't be surprised if Dan got some work with him when he was in the UK. 
and that might help Dan, you know, get that advantage against Rocky Fielding on December 17th. Make sure you get your tickets for that. But, so that's why I'm intrigued to see what Buddy can do because we've been talking about this from the New Age days through to now. There's value in going to America, but let's not overvalue what they can do. They have some knowledge, but we're all acting like we, ha we don't have access to the same knowledge in 2022. The problem isn't the knowledge in this country. The problem is the inability or unwillingness to listen. Most trainers in this country are set in their ways. Most trainers in this country think they know everything. They do. Genuinely, genuinely do. And sometimes I'll talk to a trainer and I'll just warn them. I'm like, mate, if you're not progressing, these guys are going to leave you because someone's going to get in their ear. That's what always happens. Someone gets in their ear and says, do you know what? Look at these five things you're not doing well. That's what's costing you in fights. And their current trainer could easily fix those if he wanted to. But it would require a change in his approach. And most people are like, my approach is my approach. If you don't like it, you can go elsewhere. Never like that attitude, by the way, because no one ever grows. Whereas in America, you grow. And I've talked about this in previous episodes about all these guys that Buddy McGirt all did an apprenticeship under someone else who was good. Yeah, that's why they know so much, because the knowledge doesn't get lost. Whereas we, we just throw it out. You know, a kid, will, a kid will spend four hours on YouTube, write something in a book, you know, get some money from out of this country, set up his own gym. And all of a sudden, he's the smartest man in boxing. Out of nowhere. No apprenticeship, nothing learned. Literally just, yeah, I want to just quote stuff that I saw on YouTube repeatedly on TV. And that will convince people I'm smart. And Adam Booth made a career out of that, just plagiarizing other people's work and ideas publicly. You know, very few of his ideas were his own. And that's not a bad thing, but he never gave credit to the people who, who did that. When Adam Booth was taking notes from Ishmael Salas in Miami, allegedly. No, everyone just assumed it was him, the Dark Lord. So for British trainers... Is Buddy McGirt a threat? Kind of. Because you've got to ask yourself as a trainer, I don't care if you're my friend or if you're not my friend, you've got to ask yourself as a boxing trainer, why does he know stuff that you don't? And what are you going to do to close that gap? And if he doesn't know what you know, cool, why is he able to come and hoover up fighters over here? Why does Hamza Shiraz have to go out to Tengus in the States to train? What are British coaches not doing here? At what point do we realise that what we teach our kids probably isn't good enough and it leaves them very one-dimensional when you get to that top level? But let me switch gears now before I get a load of hate in my Twitter inbox or wherever, wherever it happens. Um, I want to talk about Fabio Wardley because, as everyone knows, Fabio Wardley is one of my favourite heavyweights. I, I just like the kid. won't dwell too deep on why I like him. I just think he's a good guy overall. Fabio Ward is the sort of guy that everyone's met in their local pub. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely guy. Solid guy. I mean, might sell you a fake Brightling or something, but generally a good guy. You know what I mean? You imagine that he takes care of his family, you know, watches his lad play football on a Sunday, that sort of thing. But he's still the guy you wouldn't mess with. Right? So he fights Nathan Gorman. And you remember a time when Nathan Gorman was on the prospect list 
Not just for Britain, like globally, here's a heavyweight who could do great things. Here's Nathan Gorman, ex-Team GB as a junior. Had the option to extend that. Instead decided to go with Ricky Hatton. So now you're like, Nathan Gorman, with that Gorman traveller fighting heritage, Ricky Hatton, the combination punching. And you're like, this is exactly what we need in the heavyweights. And he's where, he's in the Northwest, where there wasn't really anyone coming through at the time. So he had the whole lane to himself to dominate. And I don't know what it is. It's a bit of the Frankie Gavinitis, right? Where he just didn't want to live like a champion. Didn't want to operate like a champion. Weighed in at 271 pounds to fight Fabio Wardley. Who weighed in, I think, about 240. Like, Fabio Wardley is probably naturally the bigger man. Nathan should have been coming in in the 230s. He didn't. That tells you that the running wasn't done. The hard work wasn't done. And he thought he could just old man Fabio Wardley. And Fabio Wardley just said, well, how about this pace and aggression for some, for some appetizers, eh? He just set about him. Left himself open and yeah, he got dropped, but he came back. At no point did Nathan Gorman let his superior class and experience tell. At no point did he show that he was the more accomplished boxer in there, which he should have done. He looked like a journeyman in there. He, I think Chris Healy would have put a better performance up against Fabio Wardy on that night. But I don't want to take anything away from Fabio because you've got to remember, five years ago, this guy was on the white-collar circuit. Five years ago, he was on the white-collar circuit. Four years ago, he was getting knocked about by Derek Chisora and Tom Little. And he's British champion now. And Nathan Gorman's a worthy British title opponent. But geez. How bad are the rest of the heavyweights that Fabio Wardley's been able to leave people in his dust? When I think of Fabio Wardley, I go back to what Martin Theobald said on the, the Ring Talk season opener. And if you haven't seen that on YouTube, go and jump on that. And he said, Fabio Wardley does all the small things really well. Shouts out, to his, shouts out his sponsors. Attached himself to Ipswich Town, right? So he's an identifiable presence in the football world. Identifi identifiable. Start again. Identifiable presence in his own hometown. How many people are doing that? You know, I'm seeing Richard Riakpo do more with Crystal Palace, seeing Craig Richards do more with Crystal Palace. I think Linus Adolfi has done it really well with Luton Town. But so many people leave that on the table. Like, I don't even know which box is affiliated with QPR. None of those West London guys have put that sort of effort in. Yet Mark Prince is ex-boxing. He could easily, I mean, make those arrangements happen. And I can see why Eddie's happy to put Fabio out. Fabio entertains. He gets stoppages. He does all the right things. From what I hear, he's easy to deal with. Stable guy, loyal guy, as he's shown by staying with the same trainer, even though other trainers tried to poach him. He stayed loyal. You know, he's backed his, he's backed his manager, Dillian, every time. I mean, anytime he's asked about Dillian, he knows exactly what to say. He's a guy that you hope gets better and better because we want to keep watching guys like Fabio Wardley. I think he's more the future than some of these other heavyweights coming through. So I'm intrigued to see what you do with him next. Do you just let him get the Lonsdale belt? I hope so. He deserves that. 
from white collar to getting the Lonsdale out, right? That would be incredible. And then you can think about moving him to world level, but what's the rush? You look at the world level, the tier one guys, Joshua, Wilder, Fury, Usyk. Those are hard outs for anyone. I don't care who you are. The camp will be hard enough, never mind the fight. Then you look at those sort of tier two guys. Like your Joe Joyce's. Um, your Hergovich's, etc. They're still a hard night out for Fabio. But they've, still got, they've got to get to the top two. They've got to have their time. So there's no rushing going up. Then they're the tier three guys. And these are the guys that put in the, that sort of bracket. Like a Joseph Parker and Andy Ruiz and so forth. Guys who on their day can win a world title. Still hard for Fabio Wardley to do anything there. Then you've got the fourth tier, where I put guys like Jared Big Baby Anderson and some of the younger heavyweights coming through. And then I'm like, he ain't even ready for that yet. He's probably in that fifth tier, so there's no rush in moving him up. But move him up carefully, because I don't want him to get to whatever his terminal level is and then get embarrassed at that level. Like, he, he should have a fighting chance. Man. Let him get well paid and let him give a good account of himself. But one thing I do want to add is this. Wardley has this thing that not many people have. And it's an ability to finish. He knows when he's got you going and he finishes you. Like, there's, no, there's no respite from the storm when he knows he's got you wobbled or hurt. And I like that. Like that killer instinct, rare. Rare, rare, rare. But he has that. So he's a guy that you can't give cheap shots to because if he gets you going, that's the end of you. And so, yeah, let, let's all just support guys like Fabio Ward because he's not the only one. There are others in weight classes who, who do all the things we like boxers to do but rarely get that public praise because, you know, they're not all up in the Twitter space or in the Instagram space. They just, as Eubank Jr. would say, they're just out in the real world living life. Uh, scooting around the rest of the card, Pat McCormack, uh, started to ask the question, did he stay amateur too long? Um, Olympic silver medalist still doesn't look like he's going to sit on his punches anytime soon. And if you look at his feet, his feet are incredibly slow for a professional welterweight. Now, I don't know if he needs better people to bring out the best in him, but he hasn't looked good so far in his two pro outings. I think it's two. And I don't know if Ben Davison can fix that. I think sometimes you got to go with real quality trainers with years of pedigree because he's doing stuff that I don't think experienced trainers would allow. I don't think Joe Gallagher would allow him to operate at that pace. You know, I don't think Chris Sanagar would allow that. I mean, I don't think Steve Bendel would allow that. Loads of trainers you can name that wouldn't allow that. Yet, there you go. Boxing... I, I want to say he's boxing within himself, but I don't know. That might be his limit. There didn't seem to be a lot of power in the shots. The jab was flicking, which is whatever. But the right hands didn't look powerful. There were a lot of shots to the back of the head. A lot of right hands were hitting the guy on the back. You know, that lack of accuracy is a problem because at some point you're going to get pulled up for these things. You can't keep hitting someone in the kidneys. Like, I mean, you've got to be responsible about where you throw your shots. So I don't know what it is with Pat McCormack. But I can now see why people were reluctant to sign him. Because, you know, it's that kind of hangover from, was it Anthony Fowler? Who, who's probably stayed amateur a cycle too long. And as a result of that, 
probably didn't get that that pro seasoning that he needed early enough. And yeah, Fowler's still a great athlete, phenomenal physical specimen, all that good stuff. And, you know, still enjoyable to watch. But considering how dominant he was as an amateur for a certain point in time, he should be doing better as a pro. And he knows that in his heart of hearts, he should be doing a lot better. But sometimes you stay in that system too long. McCormack's one of them. Fraser Clark's one of them. Too many cycles they've been in that, that amateur setup. And it's almost like it dulls your killer instinct. Like they, they make you into a nice guy, but they recruit nice guys at GB anyway. You know, happy, smiley people. So I don't know what you do with Pat McCormack. Based on that performance, you can't move him as fast as we thought you could. You, know, you, you can't put him in with the guys like Chris Congo yet. You can't put him in with a Michael McKinson anywhere in the next two years. And that shouldn't be the case because this is the guy who's, Pat McCormick's been in that Olympic cycle pre-2016. So where's the pedigree? Didn't show the pedigree, which is a real shame if I'm being honest. So let's wrap up the card. Uh, Thomas Carty looked good. Just a fun heavyweight, big lump of a man. Southpaw, likes to stick it on people. I mean, not overly technical, which is good. And, I mean, seems to have enough behind him to put people on their backsides. So, excited to see where, where that journey takes him. And I think he, he's a hard ask for anybody, isn't he? Just being a southpaw and actually having decent pedigree. Uh, I can remember back in the day when he was an amateur. And they were trying to bring him around to, to spar some of our guys. And I wish we'd got that work because he's a lovely guy. So much fun. So much energy. I quite like him. Uh, who else boxed? Siobhan Clark. Um... What do you do with him, seeing a Sky have all the other cruiserweights of note, right? Unless you can pay the money you need to get a Jack Massey fight. I just think he'll be treading water for a long time because Sky only have a Coley, really, amongst their, amongst their cruiserweights. It looks like Billum Smith is firmly hitched to the Sky wagon for now. So what do you do with him? And he's not getting any younger, so you've got to move him quickly. So I don't know. I have a feeling Hearn will just go, we can't do anything with you, and Clark will end up on Sky as well. And that's not a bad thing for him. I don't think. So, yeah, credit to him. Got another win. Uh, Sandy Ryan. I'm a Sandy Ryan fan. Liked her as an amateur. I like what she does. My only thing for her is, when are we going to see a real beatdown? That's what we need to see. The The back foot stuff is cool. The punch picking's lovely. But it's two-minute rounds. You know, that version of Sandy Ryan that fought on Saturday would have struggled against Kirsty Babington. I genuinely think if they rematch now, that's a far harder fight for Sandy. Because at some point, in those two, in two minutes changes how you coach because you're not coaching to conserve energy anymore. You know, if, you, if you really think about it, a three-minute round is essentially a four-minute block, right? Three-quarters of that is activity. One quarter of that is rest. A two-minute round is a three-minute block of activity, right? Two-thirds activity one-third rest so nominally you're getting eight percent more rest yeah and you're exerting yourself a lot less so let let, let less activity time more recovery time so it's hard to wear people out with single shots and accurate punching at some point you've got to just put that work in so i think we need to see a sandy ryan beat down at some point and then people will start calling for the big fights. And I think she's capable of delivering those. We just need that, 
that statement performance that says, yeah, I've arrived. I've arrived in this weight class. I've arrived in the pro, on the pro scene. This is who I am. But I don't think it's, re- it's not worth touching on the rest of it. In summary, solid card for Matchroom. I expect this is what we're going to see a lot more of next year for Matchroom as the budget starts to tighten. You're just going to get your run-of-the-mill Saturday night fight night cards punctuated with a few pay-per-views. So you'll see Hearn really pushing for these pay-per-views like AJ versus Wilder, AJ versus White. If by some miracle Chisora wins, AJ versus Chisora. But on a side note, it's always good to see Joshua rocking the, what do you call them, the AirPods or the AirBuds. Because I remember when he had the Beats deal. Maybe Beats just don't do the Bluetooth headphones he likes. Or actually, maybe they just said, we're not getting any value from this AJ deal. And just binned him. You know, let's not forget that at one time they were telling us that you know he had all the key brands on him. And all these brands seemed to be deserting him slowly but surely. So I think it's only right that we touch on the Frank card as well, because not. I think it was equally as solid, just for different reasons. So I don't think at the top end it had the same star power, but I think if you look at that card, it points to a a bright future for Queensbury. So credit to Frank for slowly rebuilding his stable, like real intelligent chess moves. You know, even when people were making fun of him and saying he was done, Frank always knows what he's doing. You know, he, he rides out the storm, and then when everything calms down, he's always ready to strike. So main event was John Ryder versus Zach Parker. So first thing I want to touch on is Neil Marsh. So Neil Marsh comes on social media, and it's just moaning, right? Oh my God, people don't like Zach. Why don't people like Zach? I wish more people like Zach. No one likes Zach. It's not fair. It's not right. Hmm. Here's what it is with Zach Parker. When I talk to people in boxing about why he's never connected with fans and crossed over, it boils down to this. That Daryl Williams decision is one of the biggest injustices we've seen in British boxing. Remember Zach Parker had one arm and that was barely hanging on and he wasn't able to throw any shots without excruciating pain. And Daryl was teeing off on him. I don't care how you score that fight. There's no way Daryl Williams loses that fight. And because people in boxing understood that was Daryl's last fight, he couldn't cope with the injustice. He couldn't cope with realizing he was just a piece of meat to these promoters, that they'd lied to him. And he just didn't want to touch the sport anymore. And last time I saw him at a show, he was like, no, I'm not coming back. Although you can see the, the, the fighter in him is still there like... Like, it's a hard one to explain. The fighter in Daryl Williams is still there. And if someone had just put their arm around him and shown him some love, they could have brought him back. But if we come back to Zach Parker, Zach got that decision. And we would have understood that decision had Zach gone on to do something. Had you seen him fight guys like Lerone Richards and Callum Smith and so on and so forth and say, let me show you that this Daryl win wasn't a fluke but go and look at his record padded this nobody that nobody there was this australian guy that zach parker fought and his promoter comes to neil marsh's aid and says yeah that guy i managed that your zach fought he's a good guy then i saw that he was like the fourth best super middleweight in australia i was like i didn't know they had four jeez and at least three of them must have been rugby players in a former life 
That's the dross Zach Parker's been fighting. Dross is the word. They've shielded him from all forms of competition at domestic level, and I do not understand why. And Neil Marsh has the cheek to complain. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right? So Zach has that. And he fights a guy in John Ryder who is the opposite of that. John has just been in tough fights for as long as he can. And people are trying to tell me Zach Parker could win this fight. And I said, no, because pedigree is pedigree. That Danny Jacobs win by John Ryder is worth every single one of Zach Parker's wins and more. So Neil Marsh, ask yourself as a manager, have you done the right thing for Zach Parker? The answer is no, because now the guy's got a broken hand, no opportunity at any belts. John Ryder's not going to fight him again because it's not worth his time. Now what? Now you're going to call out Zach Chelly? You're going to call out Lerone? Now what for Zach Parker? He's been badly managed. Horribly managed. Zach Parker, Martin Bacoli, these guys are being managed by clowns. And no one's honest enough in the sport to say they're being managed by clowns because they should be in better positions than they currently are. And their management's failed them. Wouldn't be afraid to say that to any one of their faces. Their management's failed them. But if you look at the fight, Parker starts off solidly. You're like, okay, he might be a factor in this fight. And then Ryder just started getting to him. And once John gets that kind of, that distance, that timing, he's like a metronome. He's just always going to get you. Unless you've got something to keep him off, which is very hard, he's always going to get you because he's consistent. That engine just doesn't stop purring at about 6,000 revs. And he was getting to Zach. And I'm not going to say Zach looked for a way out because I don't know how bad the hand is. But the simple fact of the matter is he had to retire with a broken hand. It's understandable. Um, and that's kind of his run done. That manufactured run they had for him, done. Because now you've got to go back and earn your spot. So the people you were running away from are still chasing you, but now you've got to face them. So all of this talk, I don't want to hear any talk about a John Ryder rematch until Zach Parker has a meaningful fight. A benchmark guy like a Zach Chelly or Lerone. Let's have a look at that. Let's see where we land. So, underwhelming, but happy for John Ryder because I think that puts him in position to fight someone like a Canelo. But I can see Canelo vacating because what the hell does he need all those belts for? They're a headache he doesn't need. I mean, it's an expense he doesn't need. Uh, And then just touching on whoever else was on that card, and I can't even think who else was on there. You know, I want to say Hamza Shiraz was on it, but he might have been on the other one. Nah, I think he boxes weak. And if, if he did, then here's a very simple answer. Not ready for Denzel, because look, you know, Jab's looking better. He's got the hand speed. But we remember Bradley Skeet. And remember how easily Bradley Skeet played with him. Let's not forget that. How easily Bradley Skeet played with him. So... So Hamza's got to move quickly because there are young guys like Brad Goldsmith also coming through who will start putting pressure on him. Guys like Linus Adofia, 
from the other side who will come through and start putting pressure on him. Brad Pauls. All of these guys have put pressure and Brad Pauls is no mug. Don't forget this guy was an ABA semi-finalist. People don't talk about that. Nine years ago, ABA semi-finalist. So Hamza Shiraz has got to move quick or those guys will catch him up. But they're trying to do the same thing they did with Zach, that soft matchmaking, that Nathan Heaney matchmaking that doesn't toughen you up. I just think give people tough fights. If you get a defeat on the way, so be it. But yeah, le learn what it's like to be, in a, to be in that deep end and see if you can cope. I want to congratulate iBox as well. iBox are almost becoming like an institution now, aren't they? So you've got, just as the top line guys, Archie Sharp, Sam Noakes, Pierce O'Leary, Dennis McCann, right? And Sky Nicholson, let's not exclude her. That's a hell of a lineup to have. And these are all guys who are positioning themselves for title shots next year. Like Sam Noakes, um, really grown on me, like real funny guy, real character, knows what to do when the microphone's on and then knows what to do when the bell goes. So here's a guy that's giving you 10 out of 10 knockouts. Every interview he does is engaging and compelling and fun, is a ticket seller, is respected in the Kent area. Um, I think he's from a fighting family. I think like his brother boxed as well. I might be wrong on that. So you've got him. You've got Pierce O'Leary from Ireland who is just doing damage to everyone, right? As, as seen recently, like right? He's doing damage to everybody. Dennis McCann, oh, what a stoppage. Never get tired of watching Dennis. And now that there's this bit of devil in him, it's so much more enjoyable to watch him. Um, per, per inch of body height, he might have the wider stance that exists in boxing right now but his arms are so long that it's almost like he's stood with his feet together anyway just so impressive the shots he's throwing good never a still target his head's always moving he's always looking like real intent when he when he comes on the attack really focused like everything about him's good and that stoppage when he ripped the uppercut through joe ham ah. Oh. I honestly, like, I thought he was going to go over the top rope, like Royal Rumble style. So credit to iBox, Al Smith, Eddie Lamb, Paul Taylor, and everyone else. Credit to those guys because, and Ed, forgive me for saying this, you go, go back about 10 years, they were in the backwards. In terms of trainers, they were in the backwards. No one talked about iBox, nobody. No one talked. And slowly but surely, and like, I've kind of seen it from a distance, they've just built build and learn even the exercises that have the boxers do have evolved everything about them has evolved so there's been a really progressive gym in that sense and you're starting to see the results of that so kudos to them for that and then the next stage is just about building that pipeline and keeping these sorts of achievements and progress sustainable if if you understand what i mean um anything else we need to touch on on that card uh Number one, brilliant to have Denzel Bentley, you know, front and center in, in the buildup. Finally, you know, it, it's good. And I know, I, know, I know the people who are trumpeting him and who are banging his drum. And I don't want to name names in case I get people in trouble. But kudos to them for, for realizing that Denzel, the more practice you give him, the more compelling and entertaining he'll become. But that's, that's one of your guys to get behind because he will always deliver for you. 
but it's something that should happen more often. Like, I'd like to see these channels bring people in like Denzel, bring some of the podcasters in as well, get these guys in to have their say. Because you can't keep acting like they don't have a presence. You can't keep acting like they don't have a voice in the sport. You know, having the podcast people, I think, helps elevate. It helps elevate the product. Because now, now you're showing that representation. And when you do a podcast, when you do, or when you're a journalist, you're able to have a more detached view, right? So you can bring a counterpoint to the kind of broad story pushing that happens. So I'd like to see more of that, but I think we're a couple of years off that as a minimum because, you know, you've got to change the mindset. And then this, this brings us to Saturday night. I just want to talk about this briefly. So Regis Progre beats is it Jose Zapeta. All right, wins his belt, WB something, who knows? You know, no one's really paying attention because obviously, <laughs> you know, Progray's Pro kind of aligned himself to situations he maybe shouldn't have aligned himself to if he was being more reflective. So everything kicks off because he gets paid by check. So for a start, I'm like, uh, red flag. Who the hell pays anyone by check in 2022? You know, someone only pays you by check if the money's not there today. And so Progray tweets that <laughs> the funds haven't cleared because whoever paid paid out the check has insufficient funds. And like, let's be honest, no one had a clue who the hell promoted that show on Saturday. Who the hell? God, let's try and unpick this mess. So, so a company called Marv Nation, it's run by a guy called Marvin Rodriguez, right? So prior to Saturday night, they'd done shows in sports bars, youth clubs, probably hospital waiting rooms, just like smaller than small hall stuff, right? Then out of nowhere, they bid 2.4 million for Jose Cepeda versus Regis Progre. Out of nowhere. 2.4 million. Next highest bid was, I think, about 1.2 million. Right? So not only do you bid that money, you then put a card around the event that's quite stacked. So you've got uh, the heavyweight Jalilov, you've got Charles Conwell, who are all, they're not cheap to get on your show. Fight happens, you know, the winners are the winners. Go to deposit the checks, now the checks are bouncing. That's the last thing that should be happening in boxing. I don't care what happens in any scenario, the fighters should always get paid. Now, it may be an admin problem. It may just be that the money didn't come in. I don't know. It may be the money needs to come in from elsewhere. I don't know. You know, are there red flags around some of those names in terms of where money's been coming from? Maybe. I don't want to say. But it's a mess. And that's not good for boxing, especially after the Trevor Bryant situation. And these are the times when you got to side with Eddie Hearn. These are the times you got to say, Eddie's right about these things. Are your fighters getting paid when they're supposed to get paid? Yeah. I'd rather be undercutting promoters by 75% of the purses I pay, but you're guaranteed to get them versus it's 50-50 if you're going to get your money. So what an absolute mess. And I feel for Progate because this is a family man, all right? So you're factoring in that money to do certain things. And that might may, 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 
That might be to take care of your family. It might be to start a business. It might be to plan for your retirement. All of these things are important to a guy like Progre who's in his 30s now. So he needs that money. Why, why it wasn't deposited, why the money wasn't in escrow, I don't know. But I'll come back to this point. When you're a fighter, you've got to make sure your business affairs are taken care of. You can't leave everything to the manager. And the most important thing, you can never get too greedy that you're going to overlook the basics. So I'd have had that money squirreled away in escrow before I fought. Because that way, I mean, you're guaranteeing things. But I can only hope that Progre gets it and then he can move on to, to bigger and better things. And as for Marv Nation... You know, you can't be a little boy playing big boys games. Simple as that. And hopefully they've learned a punishing lesson that, you know, top level boxing is for the specialists. Let's move on to the Sunday card at the Alexander Palace, which was, I don't want to say the coronation, but it was definitely the announcement of Adam Azim as the man that Sky are going to back to the cow sheds and back. Now I like him. Everyone knows I've, I've spoken highly of him. think he's a good kid. Him and his brother... Spent time around them last year when Dan had his British title fight against Hosea Burton. Thought they were lovely kids. Like, so much to like about them. And, listen, shouts out to Pinewood Star for for marking my card about how good these kids were ages ago. And you got to give them credit. Those sorts of gyms are Pinewood Star, who every year have a kid who's going to go and do something. Every year. If you're ever at like the schoolboy tournaments and stuff like that, they're the guys who show up with numbers. Them, uh, Charlie Rumble, obviously, him and Bill, they always show up with good kids. There are a handful of clubs that show up with good kids. You're starting to see that at Fitzroy Lodge now, so tip my hat off, they're getting the youngsters through. That's what keeps boxing alive. Those guys who produce good kids, yeah, after year after year. I should also shout out Earlsfield because they're doing their thing too in terms of producing kids. These are the guys who, who end up being your high-level performers. You know, you only have to look at the kids who are winning the schoolboy titles, your your guys like Joshua Boatsy, etc. These are the kids. You know, Scott Fitzgerald, uh, go further back, even kids like Crawler were doing things from when they were super young. Ricky Hatton's another example. It's those kids who win the schoolboys who go on to win things like the British. There's, there's a, such a strong correlation between being a schoolboy champion and being a British champion. And I know people give me examples of people who didn't do it, but they're the exception that proves the rule. If you can get yourself in position to win a schoolboy title and get, be the right club who will look after you, you'll go far. So clubs at Pinewood start, the Rumbles, Ellsfield, the Lodge, and there are other clubs as well. Kirby up north. Um, you know, a shout out to Sam Smith and Alliance and Leeds. People investing in kids. Amazing. So Adam Azim fights Ryland Charlton. And, you know, we thought it was going to be a competitive fight. It wasn't. You know, Azim took him out with a horrible knockout. Like, you don't like seeing those kinds of knockouts just because you're like, damn, I hope he's okay. And... I was left with, what, what do I make of that performance? Is, is it dominant? Yes. Has he, has he faced someone who's going to pose him the questions we need to see? Not yet. Does he, is there a rush? No. He could have two years fighting guys at this level. 
you know, pose different challenges. Some will be taller, some will be smaller, some will be stronger. Before we start talking about world honours, like you don't have to rush the kid to world honours. We just need to see. If his chin holds up, then you let him do whatever the hell he wants because he's a problem. But it's not just about letting the body mature. It's about letting the mind mature. It's about letting the relationship with Shane mature. Let the relationship with Sky and Boxer mature. All, all this stuff has to come together in the right way at the right time. And then you can unleash him on the world. But they look good. Jeezy look good. Uh, people saying he's got beef with Amir Khan. Why? A Amir Khan is so far above most boxers in this country. Like, he doesn't have to... He, He's the reason a lot of people are making money now. Amir Khan is one of the reasons why there's a, there's a pathway from amateur to pro that where you can make. He's one of those reasons because he did so much so young. Let's never forget how much Amir Khan did at a young age. We forget the Amir Khan's what thirty five now, and we've got to live through him for eighteen years. 18 years. So credit where credit's due. Like, massive respect to him for for what he's achieved and what he's done. Like, you, you can't knock that. Like, you can't knock that. I don't think he's got a problem with the Azim brothers. I, I think he's proud because he knows that's his legacy. They do well, he does well. So you know, kudos to that. And then in terms of who else was on the card, well, let's talk about who wasn't on the card. So Zach Chelly. Um, really feel sorry for Zach. Uh, let me word this carefully because I don't have all the facts, so I'm going to have to structure this. Lerone Richards has form for crying off on fights. He, he had signed to fight Umar Sadiq for the British, if you remember. And then mysteriously, three weeks before the fight, he discovered his girlfriend was pregnant. Let me say that again. He discovered his girlfriend was pregnant. And that she was going to give birth like two weeks after the, the scheduled fight date. Which makes no sense, right? Makes absolutely no sense. And then he never fought for Frank again. He went straight over to Matchroom. So you know that was probably a Caldwell move. Right? Why are, we gonna, why are we going to let our guy get beat on a Frank Warren show then get thrown to the walls? No. Let's preserve the value. Take him. Move him on. Right? So he goes on Matchroom. Underwhelms. No, you knew he wasn't Eddie's kind of guy because he doesn't deliver knockouts, he doesn't sell tickets, and he's not great in front of the camera, even though he sang that hot cross buns nonsense. And even he would admit he embarrassed himself doing that. So then he's in limbo. And Sky said, we'll give you a one-fight deal. You've got to fight Zach Chetty for the English. Bear in mind, here's a man who's, I think he's won the Commonwealth, the British, and the European. I may be wrong on that. But he's won prestigious parts, and he's definitely won the European. Whose management said it would be a good idea to fight Zach Chelly for an English title? Like, how's that progression? So my, my theory on what happened is the penny dropped somewhere. Probably Dave called or whoever said, hold on. You want Lerone Richards, who from what I heard was struggling to make the weight, to jump in with Zach Chelly, who made the weight easily and looked in the shape of his life. 
you wanted that to happen for an English title and you're paying Lerona pittance compared to what he's used to. And they're like, nah, this ain't going to happen. We can sell Lerone's name for more elsewhere. So I suspect they pulled him out and said, look, just say you had a head injury in the bathroom. Because what, what, from what I understand, right, once you weigh in, someone in your team is always around you in case something goes wrong. So the odds on Lerone suffering a mishap are tiny because there's someone around him. He shouldn't be doing anything on fight night apart from sleeping and eating, maybe rehydrating some more. So it feels like they've played the same move again where they've gone, yeah, we're not going to fight Zach Chetty. We're going to pull out. We're going to let Zach move on. And then we're going to find a fight that's entertaining and appealing to us. Maybe Zach Parker with his hand heels. Maybe John Ryder. Start making noise for certain fights, right? But I don't like this because Zach's done everything he's supposed to do. And he doesn't get to win that British, that English title, sorry. But not only that, it feels so cynical that they waited to weigh in and get whatever percentage of your purse you're meant to get when you weigh in. I don't know if you get it if you're injured. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But why wait to weigh in? You get Zach. It, it leaves a bad taste in the mouth. It just does. It doesn't feel like this is a genuine injury, and I'm not one to say whether it is or isn't, because there's form for this kind of behavior from that team. So Zach doesn't get to fight. Doesn't get paid. Kid gave up his job for this opportunity. So he's not getting paid. Terrible. If, if I'm Ben Shalom, boxer and Sky, I'm not working with Lerone Richards again. I'm just not. Because you need people who are reliable, like Zach. Guys who show up. You're a bit of a niggle, fine. You're a pro fighter, you're meant to. So that was disappointing. Um, in terms of other highlights of the night, good win for Mikel Lawal. Um, broke David Jameson's jaw. That's what, that's what Lawal does. I don't think he's ever going to outbox you, but he'll knock you into orbit. Uh, interesting that Isaac Chamberlain popped up in the interview. Mm. I saw Ben was a bit uncomfortable with that, but hey, this is boxing. Isaac wants the shot at the British. Let him have it. Um, from having spoken to Isaac, you can put any name down. Massey, he'll fight. Riakpour, he'll fight. He'll fight anyone. He'll fight Mikel Lawal. He'll fight Billum Smith again. Whoever it is, he'll fight. Tommy McCarthy, he'll fight. And I like that spirit. That's, that's the way you should be. Announce yourself and say, look, we can do it whenever. Yeah, let the audience put that pressure to make the fights happen. Because strategically, Sky have been really smart with this, where they've cornered the cruiserweight division, knowing that it's pretty much a British and European division. And if they've got most of the talent, they can make most of those fights happen. Those are good chief support fights, regardless of who you match with who. They're good chief support fights and you can churn those out on every big card you've got. So strategically, I think that's really smart on their behalf. Just making sure they've got a division where they can get good quality entertaining fights consistently because Vidal Riley's on there as well. Let's not forget him. So I thought, no, no, overall I thought that was, that was pretty good. So kudos to that. What else has been happening in boxing? Oh, no, 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 no. How can I talk about Jamie Shakiva? Stop TKV. 
Ooh, I nearly, I nearly forgot, man. That's how long I've been talking into this thing. So, for context, Sky year in, right? And first year was bumpy, trying to pull a stable together. They needed people. And what Sky are doing now is they're working out who do, who do we see having a future on this platform? And there are a number of dimensions they look at. Fan engagement, performances in the ring. Are you stopping people you should be stopping? And can we see you fighting for the meaningful titles, right? And for those people, they don't have confidence in they're putting a bit of pressure. That's why you're seeing Steve Robinson versus Nick Campbell. Yeah, because it's like winner stays on. And there'll be a few more fights like that in the sky um, scheduling coming up. I was always worried that Jamie would be on that list because I don't trust people sometimes. Now, I don't think they see what I see. And so I always have pressure on Jamie to perform. I'm like, mate, just keep knocking people out and it's hard for people to ignore you. So Sunday night, you saw what I call a typical Jamie Shakiva stoppage, typical TKV, more like a TGV, the way he just ran him over. But there was good punch picking, good power. Um, when he had him gone, he didn't just rush with the headshots. He was there, targeted the body, inflicted pain everywhere till he got the stoppage. And I like people like that who are good finishers. Same with Fabio Wardley. That'd be a good fight down the line, actually. And that's a fight that Jamie has no fears over. In fact, no fears over the Fraser Clark fight either, if they ever make that. But he did a, did his his stock the world of good with that stoppage. And I think all heavyweights need to just be in the currency of stoppages. Don't care if you're slick. Don't care if you're fast. If you're not knocking people out, it doesn't mean anything to me. And so onwards and upwards for him, I was really, really happy for him. Um, next guy discussion point will probably be Eubank versus Liam Smith. Good enough fight. Um, both guys are small guys are working their way up. So I'm not concerned about any sort of disparity in size. Liam's obviously got that experience of big events, but so is Eubank now. Eubank's boxed in the bigger weight class. Yeah, I think it's a Eubank win, but I'm going to look forward to this build-up because Liam Smith's not a guy to back down. So it's going to be quite good to see Eubank being calm and nonchalant and getting under Liam Smith's skin. So I'm looking forward to this one. Um, love the KFC jacket. Uh, takes me back to that documentary on Sky, Netflix, not even Sky, about Pepsi. You know, he, he start, you know, you're literally a walking billboard for KFC. So credit to Eubank Jr. if he's got the, the sponsorship agreement on that one because, yeah, the jacket looked decent. Like, it had definite Averex vibes to it, but, you know, conducted himself well in the media rounds, like what he said about Connor, like that he's being honest now and he's saying, look, you can't be failing two tests and then telling me you're innocent, you know? So I think that's that's really, really good. But he said something interesting that Roy Jones wouldn't be in the corner for the Ben fights, but he never explained why. But I found that interesting because I was like, well, why not? If you respect him that much, let him do all the corners. But it suggests that the, that the Ben fight will happen at some point. I don't know if that's a good look for the sport or not. I'll leave that to you guys. But I think that's pretty much it for me. Man. I'm going to sign off at this point because I am drained. But I appreciate you guys staying this long. Um, happy 1st of December to everybody. As always, if you like the content, share, introduce one other person into it, and we can keep growing this movement. And on that note, I'll say thank you and take care, guys. <laughs>